last time I stood up here was the first time I stood up here uh, was October um, 16. Um, and then we went away for a few years to Cooktown. Um, I spoke probably twice while I was in Cooktown at a morning service. We only had morning services. Um, so sometimes 15 maybe to 30 people was our congregation. And what I discovered in preparing a sermon for um, a few hundred people or preparing a sermon for 15, it's exactly the same. It takes everything and it's daunting and it's very overwhelming to handle the word of God, whether you're sharing it with one or several hundred. It's this huge thing I find. The only difference was when you stood up to talk in Cooktown, um, the toilet was behind me. So if people wanted to go to the toilet, they walked back and through, through while you were talking. That was about the only difference. Anyway, I don't expect that this morning. So, um, Now, in May 1830, George Wilson was found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the US mail and putting life of the driver in jeopardy. He was sentenced to death. Now, influential friends petitioned the American president, Andrew Jackson, on his behalf, and the president did issue a pardon for him. In relation to that actual conviction, he did have to serve out a prison term for other crimes, but um, the death penalty, he was pardoned. Um, But he refused the pardon, As a result, the US Supreme Court determined the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him, it is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And we have no power in a court to force it on him. The highest power in the nation had done all he could to save Wilson from hanging. But the only way the pardon could save him was if he accepted it. George Wilson did not accept it. And the courts had no power to force it upon him. He didn't deserve it. He just had to receive it. God, the highest power in all creation, has done everything to save humanity from the power and eternal consequences of sin. Each individual chooses whether to receive or reject God's act of grace. God will not force it upon us. I don't know why Wilson declined the president's offer. And why would anyone decline God's pardon from sin? Often it's because we have believed a lie. This is the third message in the series of silly things smart people believe. And this one, which David asked me to talk on, was, I have done too many wrong things to be forgiven. I just want to look at a few misconceptions and fears behind this belief. So the first one, misconception, if I was a better person, 
I would be more deserving of God's forgiveness. If you are believing that you have done too many wrong things to be forgiven, you are also no doubt believing that if you hadn't done those wrong things, then you would be more deserving of God's grace and his forgiveness. But how much better do you think that you'd have to be? You can try cleaning yourself up for the rest of your life. It's not going to make anything. You have no capacity to clean up your heart. You, you can try. Jeremiah 17, 19 t- states that the heart is deceitful above all things and it's beyond cure. The bottom line is that sin is an inherent condition that has separated us from the presence of God. It's not an error or a fault, little or big, that we have a capacity to fix. We can't form a committee. The government can't gather all the great theologians of the world and let's fix this problem of sin. Human, it's not something humankind can fix. It's an eternal, hor- horrific problem. The bottom line is that sin is an inherent condition. It separated us from the presence of God. So God, it took God everything It took God from the beginning of creation through all the patriarchs, all the prophets to set things in place for God himself to enter humanity and then offer himself up as the only pure and holy sacrifice for sin. See how big this is? How much it took God to do it? So sin is no little thing. So how on earth do we as humans conceive that we might be able to cure our hearts of it? I just wonder if that's what George Wilson was trying to do when he refused the president's pardon. Was he accepting the death penalty as a way of trying to atone for his own sin? I don't know. In Luke 7, Luke records an encounter that Jesus had involving a Pharisee, Simon, and a sinful woman. We aren't given her name. Now, Luke's original audience would have immediately picked up on the two extremes. One, highly respected man of God. The other, a sinful outcast, possibly even beyond redemption in their minds. Simon, believed to be worthy of God's acceptance, and the sinful woman, nowhere near it. So Luke records what Jesus did in telling a story to Simon to correct their misconception. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. I think that Simon would have been shocked to realise that he even had a debt of sin. He had no doubt worked quite hard most of his life obeying rules and regulations. But Jesus makes it obvious that regardless of where he thinks he stands in relationship to God and where he thinks the woman stands in relationship to God, that neither can pay their debt. And both are totally dependent upon God's grace to pardon them. Grace is undeserved favour. We can never deserve God's forgiveness. Often the belief, I've done too many wrong things to be forgiven, is fueled by guilt and shame. Now, it would be terrible if we never felt guilt and shame over the sin in our lives. 
But just as Jesus died to take our sin, he also promised to take our guilt and our shame. In Daniel 9.7, Daniel declares, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Open shame belongs to me. I deserve it. I'm the one with the sin. But then God makes this incredible exchange. Hebrews 3.18 tells us the righteous for the unrighteous. He exchanges positions. He clothes me in his gown of righteousness and he takes all my shame. That's an amazing act, isn't it? Colossians 1.21 tells us, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death. Why did he do this? The Apostle Paul goes on to tell us, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, guilt and shame gone. Guilt and shame condemn. God brings conviction, but he does not bring condemnation. Romans 8 tells us that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't only offering you forgiveness for the wrong things that you have done. He's also promising to free you from the guilt and shame that is attached to them. Yes, consequences of actions will have to be dealt with. But our hearts need no longer be controlled by guilt and shame. Isaiah 1, in Isaiah 1, we are told that he's washed me whiter than snow. The stains of guilt and shame are taken. When Jesus called Lazarus to come forth out of the grave, he didn't just leave him to wander around in the grave clothes. He commanded that they come off and If we've already experienced Jesus' forgiveness but are still carrying the burden of guilt and shame, we need to come back to the cross and lay it down. Jesus bore all of my sin and shame at the cross of Calvary. I don't need to carry it. Number three, another fear. How can I be guaranteed that God will accept me? Firstly, Jesus said in John 6, 3, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will never turn away anyone who comes to him. It's his promise. But secondly, if you are genuinely repentant, God cannot turn you away. Jesus will... Um, God, he cannot turn you away. God is just. He must honour the payment made for you. It's part of the nature and the character of who he is. In Isaiah 61, 8, God says, For I, the Lord, love justice. He is just. Romans 4.25 states that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised, raised to life for our justification. In this context, justification refers to a favourable verdict for us. The ESV commentary explains this scripture this way. 
When God the Father raised Christ from the dead, he demonstrated his acceptance of Christ's suffering and death as full payment for sin. God has demonstrated his acceptance of the sacrifice. Jesus has no sin, inherent or otherwise. His state of perfection made him the only completely acceptable sacrifice that could atone for sin of humankind. Anything less than this would not have been accepted. Therefore, God cannot refuse the payment that is already declared acceptable. Jesus was the payment. His life was delivered up for my sin, your sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Us all. Jesus bore the weight of the sin of all humanity upon himself as he died. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was declaring that the sin offering for all of humankind was acceptable to him. We are legally justified. A verdict of not guilty has been declared by Jesus' resurrection. But as with the president's pardon, it only comes into effect for us personally if we receive it. Our choice. If you come to him, he cannot turn you away. Forgiveness is ours, it's mine, it's yours. My debt is paid in full. Your debt is paid in full. Because the character and nature of God is just in the complete sense of the word, he must honour the payment that has been made on our behalf. It is not possible for him to refuse you. No matter how many wrong things that you have done, it is not possible for him to refuse you. His character will not allow it. He would have to deny himself to do that. God is just. He must and will honour the payment Jesus made for you. God will never turn anyone away who comes to him. Never. Now, another fear, number four. God might be obligated to receive me, but could he like me or want me after the things that I have done? In Luke 15, Jesus uses the parable of the lost son to powerfully illustrate how much the father is waiting longing for you to come home a wealthy landowner has two sons the younger son demands his inheritance takes it takes it wastes it all on sinful living and then realizes what a fool he has been the son's offense to his father was huge in jewish culture this was no small thing that this son did From many angles, it was a great offence. But what was the father's response when his son, realising the depth of his sin, nervously ventured toward home? Luke 15, 20 tells us. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son was a long way off. It didn't matter how far, doesn't matter how far we are from God. Our heavenly father is watching and waiting longing for us to come home 
The father didn't wait until the son had made all of his apologies and offered to try to work off his debt. As soon as the father spotted his son, he ran. This was very undignified for someone in his position. You just didn't do it. But all he could focus on was his son was coming home. If we come humbly to the father, realising that we have nothing to offer, nothing, only our sin and our shame, totally reliant on his mercy and grace, he will never, never, never reject us. His word guarantees it. God loves you and is wanting, longing for you to come home. Number five, Jesus' death may be insufficient to deal with my sin. Completely false. Referring to Jesus' death and resurrection, (coughs) Paul states in Colossians 2.15, He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The ESV commentary describes this. The cross of Christ marks the decisive defeat of demonic powers. It goes on to explain that the triumphing over them is an image of a triumphal Roman military procession. The defeated king and all his surviving warriors and the spoils of war were paraded through the streets of Rome on open display that they were completely defeated. Jesus disarmed and rendered all sin's rulers and authorities totally powerless. Jesus' death was more than enough to conquer the power of Satan and all of his cohorts, all sin. Jesus has won the battle over sin. He has triumphed. There is no sin that stood undefeated, none, by the sacrifice of Jesus' life. Jesus triumphed over all sin. He declared just before he died, it is finished. The battle is over. Sin has been defeated. The debt of all of humanity's sin has been paid. As Hebrews 7.28 states, once for all. No further sacrifice is required. Ephesians 1.21 tells us that when the Father raised Christ from the dead, that he seated him. He seated him far above. Get this? Far above. Not just above, far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. Whatever depth of evil, depravity, destruction that sin can reach, the humility, the love, the forgiveness, the redemption of the cross is way more powerful way more powerful. The pure blood sacrifice of God himself has dealt with sin once and for all, never to be required again, forgiveness available to all. Now, just for a minute, I've just got to step sideways from this just to mention the unpardonable sin spoken about in Hebrews 6 so that it doesn't become a stumbling block to someone worried about being forgiven. Now, I did have to seek help from Pastor David about this to articulate it. So in a, just simply in a format, this is me now quoting 
David. As a general rule of thumb, it works like this. If you are worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. The general consensus of opinion, as I understand it, is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a state of mind which is so antagonistically disposed toward God that there is neither thought or for or concern about redemption. This scripture does not apply to anyone who is worried that their sins are too great to be forgiven. Here are just a few scriptures pertaining to God's desire for all people to be forgiven, which you'll know. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 6.40, For this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Acts 10.43, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, as Christians, we probably do know all of these, but has the truth of them really penetrated our lives? Do we really believe that is possible for absolutely everyone? Or do we have some limits on it? Could it be true? Could the statement, I've done too many wrong things to be forgiven, be true for some people? No. Never. Joshua Blal was a general during the first Liberian civil war in the 1990s. He was known for his violence and atrocities that he committed. He was actually described as the world's most evil man. He confessed to murdering over 20,000 people and forcing huge numbers of children into child armies. Now, during the same period of time... There was a Bishop Kunkun, pastor of a church in Liberia, who heard and obeyed God's voice along with his congregation to pray and fast for this general's salvation. The church prayed and fasted for 54 days, and then after a succession of events, this Joshua Blal repented and came to know the Lord. And has spent many years going around now trying to correct. But anyway, that's another story. His crimes against humanity were beyond horrendous, but the power of the cross was able to set him free from Satan's control. He was able to be forgiven. The power of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ won an all-out triumphant victory over the power of sin and all demonic forces. We have to believe that when we believe these scriptures Otherwise, we're going to be docile in our prayer life if we don't really believe this. We're just going to look at some people and say, you are beyond redemption, but they're not. Jesus' death and resurrection was and is all sufficient to deal with your sin, all sufficient to deal with mine. Remember Jesus' words, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God will never turn away anyone who comes to him. Most of us have no doubt heard those expressions. They are beyond redemption or we've said them ourselves. There's no hope for them. Well, those statements are simply not true. There's always hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. 
Now, the other day, I was told about a young person with a very violent history. To have them in mainstream society was potentially too dangerous for everyone. Now, while being housed in very secure and strict facilities, that person still managed to inflict serious injury on those around them. Every part of their daily life has the strictest management and restraints upon it. It's a really sad story. Imagine being their mum and dad. That's so sad. When I heard about this person, I asked if I could know their first name to pray for them. That wasn't possible. So I made up a name for them so I could pray for them. When I was at a prayer meeting sharing about this situation, a friend said, we need to change this person's name to Hope. I just jumped. Yes, absolutely. Hope, the perfect name. In Isaiah 59.1, we are told that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. He can reach hope. His father's heart is terribly grieved. He created hope for something very, very different. And so in our prayer meeting, we prayed, believing in the power of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, knowing that it is far, far, far superior to the chains that are holding hope captive. If we base our belief system on the truth of God's word, it will set us and others free. The truth is, you can never deserve God's forgiveness. Jesus bore all of your sin and shame on the cross of Calvary. God is just. He must and will honour the payment Jesus made for you if you come repentant to him. God loves you and is waiting, longing for you to come home. Jesus, Jesus triumphed over all sin. To believe that one has done too many wrong things to be forgiven is not true. But it's not such a bad place to start as long as you don't stay there. Jesus taught Matthew 5.3, in Matthew 5.3, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who confess that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer. They are totally reliant on God's grace and his mercy. If you are worried that you may not be forgiven, the good thing is that you recognise that there is a God. You recognise your sinful state before a holy God. You recognise your need of forgiveness and you recognise that forgiveness comes from God. That's a pretty healthy place to be, actually. As long as you move forward, all you need to do now is humbly come before God, sorry for the sin in your life, and receive God's forgiveness by faith. Can you have done too many wrong things to be forgiven? No. Jesus declared, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God will never turn away anyone, anyone who comes to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what can we do but say thank you? We have nothing to offer you. We just say thank you. 
Thank you for that truth. But, Lord, let it be a truth that penetrates our lives to the very core, Father, that we are those who live it out in our lives, but, Lord, we are those who take it up for the lives of others as well, that that is a truth, Lord. Holy Spirit, penetrate our lives with your word. It's the thing that transforms us and changes. We thank you for what you've done. And, Lord, we so look forward to the captives more and more, Lord, that we will see set free by the truth of your word. Amen.